Welcome back. This is assuming, of course, you joined us at all on our preview episode, uh, episode zero. From there, I just kind of wanted to lay out some of the ideas I had for this show, but I've been thinking about it some more, and uh, I think it's probably a good idea to lay some ground rules about what it is I'm going to be doing here. Uh, So beginning here with episode one, uh, this is going to kind of be the stereotypical solo episode And what that's going to mean is we're going to be going over some albums that are of personal significance. Um, And that's a pretty loose term. That can mean something that either, um, either something that really changed me as a person, uh, caused me to reflect on some things, uh, became sort of a cornerstone of my identity in a way, if we can speak on the extremes. Um, And then we're also going to talk about some albums that I find essential. And I think that's going to be a really important conversation for our third segment. Um, And today, our third segment is going to be about canon. How is is an album deemed canonical? Why would it be deemed canonical? Who gets to decide that? And perhaps most importantly, why should we care? So without further ado, let's get into it. So for our first album that means a significant amount to me personally, um, we're going to go with pretty much like a number one seed. If you're ever looking up any sort of number one greatest albums list, uh, if you're into that sort of thing, and come on, we all are. Uh, It's kind of unavoidable that we're all going to fall victim to the listicle clickbait. It happens. Uh, certainly happened to me. Like I said on episode zero, I've been going through uh, Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 100 heavy metal albums list. Um, It's been pretty fun to do that because I've been live tweeting my listening. I've lost a lot of followers, um, but it also gave me the idea to do this. Uh, So I think that it should probably go without saying that this this first album has also been rated number one by Rolling Stone. It's been rated number one by just about everybody. And that album is, drumroll, Black Sabbath's Paranoid. And this is one that, again, should not surprise anybody. It's not the first Sabbath album. It's actually their second album. But it is the one that sticks in most people's minds, uh, largely because of the influence that it had on guitar players. You know, when I was a kid, I remember uh, hearing Iron Man for the first time, just that intro thumping kick drum, hearing the, the metallic voice, and then hearing that classic riff that everybody knows about Iron Man, and I'm pretty sure it's probably in your head right now if you're listening to this. So that was the one that made me want to pick up a guitar, and playing a guitar was something that became sort of central to me and my expression and my ability to uh, convey emotion, you know, and and that's really what music's all about, whether you're listening, whether you're playing it, whether you're engaging with it intellectually, it has to touch you emotionally for it to really mean anything. And for a long time, without going too deep into my own neuroses, um, expressing emotion wasn't easy for me as a kid. And so the way that I would do that was I would listen to the songs and think about how I reacted to them. I would think about what it felt like while I was listening, what it felt like to play it. And I think Black Sabbath's Paranoid, it's in the title. Paranoia is part of it. Depression's part of it. but also uh, this sort of visceral power 
and and I think that you have to take Tony Iommi's guitar playing and set that up as an example of what it feels like to feel power coming through in music. And it's a power that I don't think many people really tapped into before this album. Uh, it's, it's an intensity that I don't think any other album had quite channeled in this way. And to say channeled uh, almost feels like a contradiction when you listen to the album because it's kind of all over the place when you think about it. You know, like a lot of classic rock of the era, it was showing its its influences on its sleeves. You can hear these jazz breakouts. You can hear the blues and the guitar playing. You can hear all this different, uh, almost like a primordial ooze here. You know, you're seeing everything sort of coalesce into one thing, but it, also it's an infinite possibility. So anytime I talk about an album on this list, just know that there is a piece of, of Black Sabbath in that album. Uh, I, I think that of all people, Rob Zombie had something really, really profound to say about it. And he said that every other metal band that has ever existed, every riff that has ever existed has already been played and Black Sabbath played it. It's just a matter of whether or not you're speeding it up, slowing it down, tuning it down, running it through a filter, whatever. It was already done. It's just a matter of how you've taken a spin on it. And that's really why I wanted to kick off with pointing out Black Sabbath's Paranoid because that was my introduction to the canon. It was one of the first metal albums, probably the first true metal album I ever listened to, which is pretty serendipitous when you think about it. But of course, the the pump was already primed because of my number two album, which is Led Zeppelin's Volume 2. And to be honest, I, I sort of just picked a random Led Zeppelin album for this. Uh, the first time I ever listened to them was actually How the West Was Won, which was a box set of some of their live performances. And I just remember thinking to myself how crushing it felt, how visceral it felt, you know? Uh, hearing them live, especially, uh, the, the distortion on the guitar, just how loud everything was, the sound mixing, everything. And you do get a part of that in Volume 2, which a lot of people consider to be one of their heavier albums. And you can hear it in a whole lot of love. You can even hear it in the Lemon song to an extent, even as bluesy as that is. These are still songs that took blues to the next level. It took that emotion from blues uh, and then amplified it. Because really, that's what it's all about. And, you know, metal is a, is a genre of extremes and it's a, a visceral genre. You're supposed to feel this. Not only are you supposed to feel this, you're supposed to feel this deeply. You're supposed to feel this in a powerful, powerful way. And I think Zeppelin uh, was one of those bands that even though they were sort of messy, they didn't really have a, a central uh, sound, you know? They weren't like a Metallica that had this bedrock sound of, okay, we're playing fast, we're playing power chord riffs, um, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of chugging, that sort of thing. Uh, they didn't have that. They didn't have that sort of bedrock sound that everything varied from but they still found a way to find this tonal, uh, like, a, like a central tone more than anything, rather than a central town uh, or a central sound. And I think that that's something that they share with Sabbath. I think that finding a consistent sound came later in the development of metal. But what makes all of the great albums great, in my opinion, and we'll talk more about this later on, is that... They have a tonal consistency. What are they trying to get at? 
thematically. What are they trying to make you feel? What are they trying to convey? And I think the great albums, the great bands have a sense of that going into it. They already know what they want you to feel. They already know what they want to convey to the audience. Uh, and that to me is is something that comes through in Zeppelin too. And really what they're trying to get at is that they're really horny, you know? Uh, <laughs> that's not something that they share with a ton of other uh, artists in this genre because most of the people in this genre are a bunch of nerds. Uh, they don't really <laughs> talk to girls from the sounds of things. It's a very, uh, it's, it's very um, testosterone-laden genre. And you would think that that would express itself the way it did with Zeppelin or some of the hair metal bands where they would just talk about fucking all the time. But, alas, they're mostly nerds. And so, you know, Zeppelin 2, <laughs> Zeppelin 2 taking this sort of bluesy, uh, sort of rubbery guitar, you know, instead of chugging and powering and, and thumping, they, they took this sort of bluesy, rubbery sense, and, and that actually brings us to a really modern album uh, from 2007, an album called The Big Dirty by Every Time I Die. Now, Every Time I Die, if, if you're a fan of theirs, you probably recognize that. I actually got the name for this podcast from one of their songs, and uh, I think that they're probably my favorite band of all time, which may be kind of could come as a surprise if you know me and you know how much I love like death metal you know I love classic metal like Black Sabbath like Dio stuff like that uh, every time I die is still the one that sticks with me the most and partially it's because I found them at a key point in my life when I was about 13 or 14 years old and I think that I was actually introduced to this album just looking through all of the the music magazines the heavy metal magazines and reading reviews of it, as I did back then, because back then I really cared about that sort of thing, um, I just assumed that if somebody said it was good, it probably was worth listening to. And I'm glad I did in this case, because what I saw was people saying how Southern it sounded, right? Um, this is a band from New York, but you could have told me that this album came from Tennessee or Georgia. I probably believe you, because... Again, it's hard to explain until you hear it, but there's a rubberiness to the guitars. There's a lot of um, bending the strings. There's, there's a lot of single notes that they're working through in their riffs rather than the power chords that you get in certain genres. Even in metalcore, which is extremely power chord centric, I think Every Time I Die, starting with this album, set themselves apart from other bands uh, by leaning on that classic rock sound, that blues sound. Some the guitar playing sort of calling back to that era, uh, back to the era of the Led Zeppelins, back to the era of the Leonard Skinners, the two bands that first got me into rock music in the first place. Um, that was something that really harkened back to my progression as a fan, as a listener. And I had already known them from The New Black, which is a song off the, the album Gutter Phenomenon, which came out right before The Big Dirty. Uh, but... I had not uh, gotten familiar with the rest of their stuff until The Big Dirty, and it really blew my mind. It blew everything out of the water for me because of that, and because the the lyrics, they were self-deprecating. They were, you know, not exactly the sounds that you would expect out of a, a mentally well person. Um, but the thing that Every Time I Die does that sticks with me, and specifically Keith Buckley, 
does, did, I guess, now that the band is broken up, sadly, is that he speaks to, he speaks to exactly what I feel whenever I'm at my lowest, that self-deprecation, that sort of paranoia, that sort of very insular feeling, you know, it's not always just a fear of others, it's a fear of yourself and the self-destruction that you could wreak. Um, that's a, a central theme in his lyrics, and it's something that is really, really profound to me, because I think that touches on my own sort of struggles in life, is this feeling that I am my own worst enemy. You know, I'm not trying to lay out all of my personal business, like I said, but that's sort of what we're talking about here when we talk about the significance of these albums and the significance of music in general in our lives. Um, so yeah, Every Time I Die, The Big Dirty, it, really all of these albums that I'm talking about here are worth a listen. Now, the, when I'm talking about personally significant albums, I'm not just saying that they're only good because they mean something to me. Uh, I would highly recommend everyone, if you're a fan of this kind of music, getting familiar with these albums because they are uh, uh, somewhat significant in one way or another, especially these first five that I'm listing here on this episode, because they do mark a break in the sound. They mark a break in um, what is considered the norm of the era in that subgenre. Like I said with the Big Dirty, you didn't have metalcore that sounded like this. You know, you didn't have this southern twang uh, in metalcore before this. And then you did hear some of that come along later, this sort of party-ish metalcore. Um, you didn't get that until a little bit later, and I think you saw it really break through with the Big Dirty. Um, speaking of breaking with the norm, we're moving on to perhaps a more controversial uh, pick because this came from an era that is not terribly popular amongst really anybody nowadays, unless you're wanting to be a contrarian or somebody who's sort of going back and having this revisionist history. Uh, but this one is significant to me because it was banned in my home. Um, it was one of the first, it was probably the first album where I got the CD and my parents very quickly removed the CD from, from, my, uh, from my big boom box that I had as a kid. And that album is Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park. Now, if you're my age, if you're 27, 28, up to 35 or so, then you probably know this album front to back, and you either hate it or you absolutely love it. And frankly, I still love it. Do I think that it's the best kind of music? No. Is it still cheesy? Absolutely. But frankly i do think there are some cool things to take away from it and it's yeah you can say you don't like your rap and your rock put together and i get it and i don't think that it always works even on this album uh, but one thing that does stick out to me uh, is that even the rapping portions are there to supplement not supplement but actually elevate the vocals from chester uh, the, the primary vocalist who does the clean and the dirty vocals uh, and he's got a wonderful voice for both. But that is one thing that I found really compelling about this album. And I think is really central to new metal generally, and that I hadn't really considered before I sat down and really listened to this album with intent. But a lot of it is based around the idea of everything coming together to bolster the vocals, to bolster the lyrics and the delivery. Uh, and I think you really get it here, especially with the Nirvana-like contrast between the verse and the chorus. Um, you really get this sharp focus 
on what the artist is very explicitly telling you. And I think that's part of the reason why people think new metal is cringe, uh, because it's very open. It, everything is on its sleeve. The heart is wide open on this, whether it's libidinal, like Limp Biscuit, for example, whether it's very sappy and, and very almost awkwardly um, open about its sort of traumatic roots, like Korn, because that can feel uncomfortable because he's just sort of very explicitly laying out all of these traumatic, horrible feelings. Or like Linkin Park, where they, there is just this sense of trying to overcome something. Uh, it can be uplifting. Uh, it can be something that works perfectly for anime music videos, for example. <laughs> Anytime you watch... What, that was the coolest shit in the world when I was like 12, was going onto YouTube and watching videos of Goku going Super Saiyan uh, to In the End by Linkin Park, because it is uplifting. It is powerful on that visceral level. Um, if I could just nerd out for a second about Dragon Ball Z. Um, but, yeah, I, I couldn't think of, uh, of an album that was more significant to me in breaking into the, the heavier side of things with the, the dirty vocals, the, the yell, screamed vocals, yelled vocals, whatever you want to call them. Um, but sticking with that idea of breaking me into a new level of extremity, we have, in my opinion, my opinion, you can argue with me on this. Please argue with me on this, because I think that's fun. I think that can bring some things to light. Cryptopsy's None So Vile. Um, I don't know if there has been a more brutal album than this. I don't know if there's been a more conf confounding album than this uh, in terms of brutal death metal's fixation with not just hitting you in the gut as hard as possible, but also creating a really challenging technical album. I think that this album marries that together better than most, because a lot of slam bands, for example, they just go for the brutality, they go straight for the gut. A lot of the progressive sounds, you, a lot of progressive metal, you miss that, that heart, you miss the bloodiness, you miss the, the visceral reaction that you get from death metal. And I think Cryptopsy gets both. Uh, I remember being a kid and, and getting a hold of my parents' credit card, and I got in a lot of trouble for this, but I got a hold of my parents' credit card, and I just racked up iTunes purchases. And I saw this on there, and I saw the album cover, Severed Head on a Plate, and I thought, you know what? This scares the shit out of me. Let's go for it. And it did scare the shit out of me, and to this day, it kind of still scares the shit out of me. Shout out to Lord Worm on the vocals. We, meet, we need more of you. Please come back into more lives. Um... Please, as I said, listen to all of these albums. Uh, even if you hate it, you should know about them. Uh, they are significant to the sound of metal. We didn't. We did hear some departures from the norm with these albums, uh, and I, I think that we are going to get a lot more into that idea of departing from the norm going forward. Um, which brings us to our second segment. Now, the second segment of these. Uh, solo episodes like what I'm doing today, which I intend to be every other episode because I'd love to get some guests on so it's not just me ranting in your ear uh, for however long. But the second segment is going to be about albums that I recommend to you, the listener, uh, albums that I deem essential. Now, what does essential mean? I think I'm shooting for quality here, obviously. Uh, I want everybody to understand how good this music can be, uh, but I also want to sort of carve out my own canon 
my own standards for how you judge albums and also for uh, turning points like I was talking about in segment one about turning points in the history in the development of heavy metal right and so to get started with that is an album that maybe didn't change the paradigm but I think did set a standard that frankly I'm not sure has been met since and that's 2004's Terrifier by Pig Destroyer. Now this is a great grindcore album and by great in my opinion the greatest uh, you can talk about Terrorizer, you can talk about uh, you can talk about Napalm Death all you want great bands that still hold up to this day uh, even though their best stuff came out in the 80s early 90s I think that this right here is the peak of it all and it sort of epitomizes grindcore. Maybe that's why I see it as the greatest. Is because what they did was maybe they didn't uh, they didn't break the mold, but what they did was elevate everything to its peak. They took that nastiness, that brutishness, that brutality, uh, and also the speed and frankly brevity of the songs. Then they just sort of brought it to its logical conclusion here. Um, I think you could also make a case for agoraphobic nosebleed getting some love on this uh, list. Maybe I'll come back to them. But it doesn't surprise, it shouldn't surprise anybody that Scott Hull is responsible for both. The guy's got an ear for grindcore uh, on this one. He shows in his guitar playing how you can still write a great riff uh, and still get the speed. You can still get the brutality from it while it's still just being a good fucking riff. Uh, I think a lot of people forget that and had forgotten that over the years. Uh, they thought that speed was everything. They thought that just hitting that ear-splitting speed and sound, uh, the, the heaviness, the loud sound, was going to be everything. But I think that Scott proved on this album that really what you can do is just write a good riff, play it faster, tune that guitar a certain way, and get that chainsaw guitar tone uh, that everybody's looking for and you can get a great album out of it and I do want to point out the a standout song on this Towering Flesh which is ironic because it is I think three and a half minutes long which is about three minutes longer than most grindcore songs it seems um, but it is a standout it is the the centerpiece of the album and if you're going to ever listen to Grindcore and you really want to know the peak, the pinnacle, the standard from which everything should be judged, in my opinion, it's this one. Uh, let's go in the totally opposite direction for our number two here of Essential Albums, and let's go to where it all began, Black Sabbath's self-titled album. Yes, it's, it's obvious that I would have to say this at some point, but it's obvious, right? We're talking about the canon being a, a part of the canon means that it's obvious uh, and it is readily apparent to anybody who hears it that if you're getting into the the genre then this is what you need to know this is the 101 level class and for 101 level classes it all has to begin with the first album black sabbath now I think in a future episode I'm going to get into sort of the roots of metal, like before metal, the pre-metal stuff, the classic rock, uh, the blues, the jazz, even perhaps some pop bands for setting the, the idea in people's heads of the makeup of the band. Um, but Sabbath right here sort of saw everything coalesce, uh, and it did not coalesce smoothly. 
there are like i mentioned on paranoid these jazz breakouts these like seven minute long eight minute long medleys of different songs thrown together there are bass solos um there are harmonicas uh it is it is just a salad rather than a than a, a soup right <laughs> it is it is everything thrown into a bowl together and is left for you the listener to decide um, what is the most significant part if you're going to make music inspired by this album you have to choose which parts of it you're going to take from it and i think that that is a thing that i want to hammer home on with every classic album like this every album from the late 60s into the 70s is that these albums were messy these albums did not have a central sound as i mentioned with uh paranoid and with led zeppelin volume 2 there was not this idea of we have a sound we have a standard sound we know that we want part a part b part c in every song it was a mess it was all over the place but what tied it together was the theme it was the central tone the baseline idea that they were going for that they wanted you the listener to get out of the experience and that is what makes this album so great is because they knew every song was going to contribute to that central tone that central theme that central reaction uh, and I think that you can hear that in this album and in all great albums. Uh, and I think that that idea of everything coalescing from beginning to end as an album that you are intended to listen to from beginning to end, something that you get before the streaming age, of course, uh, carries through even into the modern era. Uh, which brings us to number three, Mastodon's Crack the Sky. As I said, that legacy of going from beginning to end to learn one thing, whether it's an emotional response or an intellectual response, going through the whole album as a unit is best epitomized on this one right here, in my opinion. Uh, Mastodon has released a ton of classic albums. They're one of the very few uh, bands out there who I, I really struggle to think of a bad album. Um, I think from beginning to end in their career, they're not over yet, of course, but up to the modern, uh, up to the modern era of their sound, they've remained pretty consistent. But I don't think that they ever hit upon the sort of uh, musical technical precision as well as the cohesion of the album uh, as, as what they hit here. It, I don't think that it came together better than this. Now, I might be biased because I've done shrooms and listened to this album, uh, which is probably the best way to listen to it if you understand the psychedelia involved. Um, but sober, tripping, fucked up. However, it's a great album. Uh, and it's one of those albums that even if you're the kind of person who feels a bit daunted by a seven-minute medley of songs, it'll be worth it here because they managed to cram in so many great riffs, solos, melodies into every moment of this album. And it all builds on each other, which is so impressive to me. Uh, it's, it's always impressive to me to hear somebody think of a, an album or a song 
as uh, just one work of art rather than three distinct riffs crammed into one space over the course of four minutes or 12 songs that don't have the cohesion even if they have the same aesthetic. Um, in order to think of it as one big whole is very impressive from an artist and I think that they really nailed it here. Uh, keeping on with that, really that's the central theme for all of these essential albums right now and I realized this when I was putting this list together that what I'm giving you are five albums that whether they have the same aesthetics or not, and none of them do, these are five albums from totally different directions and different subgenres, they all cohe they're all coherent. They all, from beginning to end, have an idea in mind that they don't deviate from. Uh, and even in the mathcore genre, as small of a genre as it is, you've got Dillinger Escape Plan's Ironworks. Ironworks is another album that I remember exactly where I was when I first heard it. Uh, I remember being a kid and getting one of those magazines that has the preview CDs. They don't, probably don't sell those anymore, but back in the day, I, I would go to Barnes & Noble and I would beg my mom, you know, can I please get this, can I please get this, even though it's like 15 bucks, um, but I just want this this CD, you know, that they would come with all the new music and all of the interesting new songs that people were putting out, and one of them uh, was Milk Lizard from Ironworks, and I... I had never in my life even considered the possibility of a song like that, and I had never considered how you could seamlessly go from the beautiful melodic choruses in this album, uh, like The End of Milk Lizard, like Sick on Sunday, um, like Dead is History, um, and then you could marry that with the extreme brutality uh, that was clearly influenced by grindcore on songs like Lurch or songs like Fix Your Face. You know, it, it feels dirty to listen to those songs, um, but then it, you come out feeling clean by the end of it. And in, in order to take an audience on a ride like that through one cohesive unit, I think is, is the kind of feat that only the greatest of bands can do. Uh, and so I would highly recommend anybody, even if it feels too extreme for you, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, realize that that is the point. That is the point. And there is an artistic merit in taking you to an uncomfortable place. And I think that a lot of listeners maybe aren't bold enough to do that. And that's fine. That's not why you listen to music. I get it. If you're into pop music, if you're into stuff that is a little easily digestible, there's nothing wrong with that. There is no wrong way to engage with art, I think. Um, but if you do want to go a little bit deeper, then I think that you need to learn to feel comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that this album is a great way to keep you on your toes and to keep you engaged from beginning to end. Now, speaking of being engaged uh, from beginning to end, we've got another one that has a lot of juxtaposition of these different clashing sounds, and that's Opeth's Blackwater Park. Uh, Opeth is another one of my favorite bands uh, because that I think that they marry, just like Dillinger Escape Plan, many different sounds that keep the tonal consistency. It's not an aesthetic consistency like a lot of these other albums I've mentioned, but it is a tonal consistency and it is telling you a story. And I think that it isn't something that rewards a casual listener. Uh, not everybody's going to listen to a 10-minute song while they're just sort of hanging out or on their commute to work. But if you are able to take a seat, you are able to put this on the vinyl record or, or even just put your headphones in and lay back and give it a listen, you'll be taken on that journey 
um, and you will be not only wowed by the technical prowess of this band, because it is there, but you will also be wowed by just the raw emotion that you get out of it. Uh, and, it and it's multiple different kinds of emotion. They're not just a, a band with a singular focus in that way. They bring you across all different sounds, all different feelings into one perfect moment. And, and that perfect moment comes at the end of the album once you have viewed it as a whole, once you have seen all of these different, seemingly disparate uh, uh, sounds, different feelings, you feel the, the gestalt at the end, that all of this came together, all of this told me one story. Um, and I think that's so fascinating to me. That is so fascinating how you can get that out of death metal, especially. Uh, death metal is a, a genre that is not really known for its complexity from an emotional standpoint. It's mostly known as an, a visceral, uh, a visceral genre. And while that's great, and that's what we're here for, the epistemology of death metal is we learn through brutality. Uh, this is what this is how we convey uh, emotions. This is how we convey what we want the audience to feel is just through the brutality i think opeth pushed it in a different direction and uh that actually is a nice little segue to uh segment three because Mikhail ockerfeld the sort of mastermind behind opeth main songwriter vocalist guitar player uh, he doesn't even consider his band death metal which is interesting when you hear just the technical precision of his you know, ability to write riffs that clearly have their, their, um, they clearly owe a lot to death metal. And also in his vocals, which I think he's one of the best death metal vocalists we've ever heard. Just the clarity of his, his death metal vocals, especially with the, the high quality of the sound production that you get on a lot of these albums like Blackwater Park. Um, it would make you think, yeah, this is the next level of death metal, but he actually distances himself from that. He says, no, we are not a death metal band. I don't even want to be a death metal band. And the only reason we were ever sounding like a death metal band is because I felt uncomfortable and did not have the confidence other than uh, death metal. Because uh, those were his roots, obviously. But they went in that more progressive direction over time uh, because he said, death metal will never get better than the late 80s, early 90s. Bands like Morbid Angel. He said Morbid Angel was the peak and nobody else could come close, so no one should try. Um, and that, to me, is something that I don't agree with. Uh, now, far be it from me to say that Mikhail Ockerfeld is uh, wrong or doesn't know what he's talking about. I think he's one of the great musicians of his era. Um, but I think that it says a lot about how the canonization process begins. Uh, and that will bring us to segment three. So in segment three, um, this is going to be different on all of these solo episodes. As I said at the beginning, I'm never going to stick with the same idea because that's just not how I think, um, unless I say otherwise. Because, hey, I'm writing the rules here. This is my show. Uh, I'll do whatever the hell I want. But for this particular episode, I thought it would be prudent to, you know, start about, start talking about the canon, right? And what that means, right? So what does it mean to be canon? Being a part of the canon is being considered essential. It is being cons it is considered to be the bedrock for everything that comes afterward, right? 
it's not a unique term to music, uh, but it, you know, if I'm not mistaken, it's actually more of a religious term, right? Uh, what is considered canon is what is considered the word, capital T, capital W, the word, right? Um, but the musical process of canonization is a really interesting one to me because, again, I've been reading that Rolling Stone Top 100 list. I've read their other top whatever lists. You see it in different publications. Every few years, somebody comes along and decides, we're going to rank a certain amount of albums, a certain amount of artists, a certain amount of songs, and in that process, we are going to set the standards for everything that comes afterward, right? If you're somebody who's new, this is what you need to know. So who gets to choose that, right? Um, who gets to choose that? So there are there is sort of a sociological explanation here, uh, and it could be that the dominant class uh, involved in that subgenre, that scene, that section of, of humanity uh, is the one that gets to set the standards, right? So if you are of the class of person who tends to buy the albums, if you are the main consumer, uh, or if you're the main producer or the main distributor, uh, then perhaps you get to be the one who says uh, who it is, right? That if you are of the, the class that has the biggest voice in the room, it stands to reason that you would be the one that writes the history, right? Uh, whoever has the loudest voice tends to win out in those arguments. And so there is that. Now, there could be an industrial or an economic reasoning behind this. Um, so think about this, right? If you are the Rolling Stones, if you are the Beatles, if you are Black Sabbath, your albums are going to be re-released every like five years, right? You're going to get constantly get new ma uh, remasters done. You're going to go on reunion tours. You're going to have greatest hits albums come out, box sets, uh, DVDs showing your live performances, documentaries about you. If a band member passes away, God forbid, uh, then you're going to get another wave of nostalgia that comes along. And with that wave of nostalgia and those re-releases and remasters and DVD box sets and buying, you know, t-shirts and fucking Coles or something like that, you are going to be introduced to a new audience every time. And that is a reification of the canon. Somebody has already said, this is important. And that person tends to be the one who buys the albums. That tends to be the person who writes the magazines. And then every so often, they will reassert their dominance in setting the standard of the canon and setting the standard of the music by being the ones who decide this is what we're going to re-release. This is what we're going to put at the top of our list. This is what we're going to write our documentaries about. And then you have a new generation of people who believe the same thing, right? Uh, and, and that is often called the anchor effect, right? Maybe not often, because this is more academic jargon from what I understand. I was, reading a, I was reading an actual academic journal on the topic from some musicologists. And uh, a, a writer named Lumen called it the anchor effect where one generation has planted the flag and said this is the standard and every generation is tethered to that flag uh, going forward you know so maybe it is um, just a social construct or an economic construct to say that Black Sabbath is the beginning who's to say right do you subscribe to that sociological explanation do you subscribe to the 
more um, economical explanation, you know? Is there that much of a difference? I don't necessarily think there is. I think that the sociological explanation begets the economical uh, explanation. That's just my reading. Um, but it, it is it is important to consider these things because if you consider where the canon is placed, right, where or who is placed in the canon, I should say, then that should show you the limits of our imagination of what this music can be. Think about what uh, Mikkel from Opeth said, that Morbid Angel was the best it ever got, and Dave Vincent's the best vocalist that, that in death metal history, and nobody's going to be better than that. Well, what Mikkel is doing is he is limiting the scope of our imagination, uh, and this is a, an art form that should have unlimited horizons. This is, a, you know, music generally is what I'm speaking about here. It, it could mean anything. It could come from anywhere. It could come in so many different aesthetic forms from so many different sociological perspectives. And I think planting your flag in just one place it comes with a very narrow slice of the possibilities in music, right? So what am I saying here? Am I saying that we should not participate in the canonization process? Should we not care about what people say? That's not what I'm saying at all. Because I think the process of canonization is one that is an in inevitable. We're all going to do it. I'm doing it right now. I'm giving you albums I consider essential. You can do the same. As a matter of fact, I think in the future, a lot of my guests, we're going to talk to them. I'm going to see um, the difference between our definition of essential and theirs. Uh, what is so important to them and why is it not what's important to me and vice versa. I think that is very interesting to interrogate, uh, not just with metal music, but with any, any art form, right? Uh, and I think that it matters because, because it shows us something about ourselves. When you set a standard for an art form, what you're saying is this is the most effective at conveying uh, a message, an emotional reaction, an intellectual reaction, it is the most effective at getting that response out of me. Whether it's by doing something totally new and breaking from the norm, uh, like when, you know, uh, uh, Jane Doe came out by Converge, for example, we're going to talk more about that album later, something that just completely blew people's minds and came out of nowhere. Um, or if we're talking about something like uh, Screaming for Vengeance by Judas Priest, which I'm sure we'll talk about, where they're not breaking the mold, they're not doing anything new, but they're just doing it a lot better than, than their contemporaries, which is probably going to be a controversial statement. That's fine. We can argue about it later. Um, but my point is, we it tells us a lot about ourselves, and it tells us a lot about our culture more broadly uh, when we take a look at and strongly consider what it is that is considered to be essential, what is it What it is that's considered to be canon. Uh, so I just want to leave you with that note, and, and actually I really what I want to do is leave you with uh, sort of laying out my own biases and my own um, canon, canonization process that I've come up with, uh, which is that I think that albums are essential when they have a purpose, um, coming into their own head of, of what they want to be, what they want to do, right? 
so an artist coming out there and making a bold statement and saying this is what we want this album to be this is what we want this music to do this is what we want to say and they do it with intention and they build the aesthetics around that uh, they build the sound around that that to me is a sign of greatness and i think that another sign of greatness is when they are fearless in the face of conventions right now of course we can't really know what's going on in the heads of, of a certain artist but i think maybe not even intentionally challenging conventions in a sort of contrarian way or a reactionary way um, but just looking at the conventions and saying that doesn't really matter to me that much that what i'm trying to do is not something that needs to be validated by others that to me is great and that to me is something i greatly respect um, for example uh, you know metallica's black album an album i don't particularly like i still have to credit a great deal because metallica knew what they wanted to do they knew how they wanted to sound and they knew that people weren't gonna like it and they didn't care and that frankly is greatness whether i like it or not i have to give them that um, and then of course in my own essential um, list of albums as we've already heard as i've already said multiple times you're probably tired of hearing me say it um, but what i like to hear is an album that is best viewed as a single composition and not just a collection of songs or a collection of riffs or a collection of different ideas i like to see things tied up in a neat little package right uh, even when the sound isn't neat i think the idea should be uh, and and that's what i mentioned with opeth blackwater blackwater park dillinger escape plan ironworks uh, you, right there you are seeing albums that go in all sorts of messy directions with the sound but it all comes together by the end if you listen to it and think of it as one single composition um, and so that's that's really where I'm probably going to be going with this whenever I uh, go through this and, and create my own little uh, canonization process so that's pretty much all I got for this episode. I've been talking nonstop on my own, droning in your ear. I apologize. It will change next week uh, when I talk to my good friend Marcus, uh, who has been so kind to have me on his own podcast, More Comics Than a Motherfucker. Uh, highly recommend his show, MCMF. You can look it up on any of the podcasting platforms. You should especially listen to the ones that I'm on because those are really good um because i'm on there clearly but uh we're going to be going over some albums that shaped his taste um that did good things for him or bad things maybe i don't know he'll get into that when we get to it uh, but we'll be talking about albums by bands like coheed and cambria system of a down zeal and ardor thank you scientists and protest the hero uh, i'll let him get into more of why they're so important but we're going to be talking about where he was when he first heard it. We're going to be getting some context of where he was in life uh, when he heard it, uh, how often he returns to it, things like that. We're going to have a really good time. Uh, and then he's probably going to give me some homework, some things that I should look more into and read more about uh, and listen to on my own, which we will come back to on episode three when it's just me again. Uh, I'll be reporting back and he can let me know 
uh, how I did with learning what he wanted me to learn. And hopefully the audience, you guys can engage with me at Lake Dragging on Twitter. Uh, I also have an email account set up in case anybody wants to send me something in the long form, lakedragging at gmail.com. Send me your lists. Send me things that you think are interesting. Tell me if you think that I suck. Tell me if you think that I had a good idea. Uh, tell me if you got something out of this or if I need to just totally scrap this project entirely and just go back to listening on my own. Um, this is all about engagement. This is all about the community. So uh, let me know if uh, you have anything great in mind and let me know if this did anything for you. And more importantly, have a good day and check in next week.